0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Job 41 in your Bibles. If you turn to Job 41, that will get you close to where we're actually beginning, which is Job 40, starting at verse 15, because that's where we left off last week. We are going to finish Job tonight. And the last part of the book of Job is God making his sort of closing argument to Job. In that argument, he's going to bring up two creatures the behemoth. And the Leviathan. Now, through the years, people have tried to decipher what creatures he's talking about. Some people have said that they may be mythical creatures, except that right away in verse 15, God is going to say, look at the behemoth. So that doesn't sound very mythical. And then he says, the behemoth is something I made as well as I made you. So it sounds like an actual creature. Of the commentaries that I've read, of the respected commentaries, the best bet for the two of them is that the behemoth is probably a hippopotamus, which in that area of the world, in the Middle East at that time, that was the largest of the land mammals, and sometimes hippopotamuses could become bigger, heavier than even elephants, And so that was considered to be the greatest and least controllable of animals. Nobody ever had a pet hippopotamus. (laughs) You don't ever go to the circus. Pardon me? I listen to the song every Christmas. Which is? I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas? I don't know that song. And now they're singing it. Now they're breaking into song. If you go to the circus, you're very unlikely to see somebody training hippopotamuses, because they they just don't do that. And the Leviathan, the way he is described, has led people to begin the mythology of dragons. And we're going to come across the language that would lead to that kind of thinking. But again, whatever river in the Middle East you're talking about, whether Egypt, whether the Nile... Whether the Jordan, even out into the Euphrates, crocodiles were the primary scary creature that actually lived along the banks and in the waters. And as you read this description, you're going to see that it's a pretty accurate description of a crocodile. And so, as I said, the best commentaries that I've read have narrowed down the behemoth and the leviathan to be the hippopotamus and the crocodile, Let me read a little uh, sentence for you here from one of the commentaries that I'm speaking of. It says, even though some people have assumed that these may be mythological animals, they are apparently actual animals. However, they also represent proud, wicked elements in the world. In the ancient Near East, these beasts with their brute force he's talking about hippopotamus and crocodile with their brute force and their agitation of the waters which we're going to see described here symbolized the chaotic effects of evil so this helps to explain how the crocodile then became the basis for the idea of the mythological dragon a creature that causes extreme chaos in the waters in Egypt a pharaoh in preparation for his enthronement, ritually harpooned a male hippopotamus and occasionally a crocodile to dramatize his ability to dispel chaos and maintain order. The king could carry out this very difficult harpooning task only because of his supposed superhuman godlike strength. But God was showing Job that he did not have that kind of ability to control these animals. And since he could not conquer the animalistic symbols of evil, how could he subdue evil people? God is going to say at the end of chapter 41, after he has described the behemoth and the Leviathan, God is then going to put a challenge in front of Job and say these are just Creatures, these are just animals, these are something I made, and you can't control them. How are you going to control me? Hmm. How are you going to make me do what you want me to do when you can't even control these creatures? So, that is the essence of the entire argument. It all comes down to if you can't control the creatures of earth. If you can't control your own life, your own health, you're clearly not in control of anything, and you're certainly not in control of me. And that is kind of the summary statement that God has been making, I think, all the way through this book. And so you're going to see Job then in chapter 42 turn from his demand that if God was here, God would have to answer him he then turns and says, you teach me, I'll listen to you, and then God's going to restore him. So we will summarize and and get to our conclusion after we've read those two chapters. So let's start in Job 40, verse 15, and learn about the behemoth. Behold now the behemoth, which I made as well as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Okay, that's pretty unique that's pretty creative on God's part to make something the size of an oxen or the size of a hippopotamus and yet they they feed on grass they're herbivores you would think something that massive and that scary would be something that would chew you up but he won't chew you up he'll run you over he'll charge you and run you down behold now his strength is in his loins, in his muscles, and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. This was something that the people of the Middle East knew very well, and something that you can try yourself if you get brave one day. You can run full force into a hippopotamus. Hippopotamus won't move. He doesn't care. He's just going to stand there. Because as God said, that's how I made him. I gave him bones like brass. I gave him limbs that are like bars of iron. And he is first of the ways of God. In other words, he's the largest. He's the primary of all the land-dwelling creatures. And let his maker bring near his sword. In other words, if anyone is actually going to conquer this animal, if anyone's going to kill or control this animal, it's not going to be you, Job. It's going to be the one that made him. And I'm the one who makes him, not you. Surely the mountains bring him food. In other words, he dwells in pastures. He eats the things that grow up into the mountains. And all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants, he lies down, and in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. I don't know how much you know about hippopotamuses, but they live most of their life in water, along the reeds, along the side of the river, and they cover themselves with the lotus plants, the lotus that float on the water. They dwell among those things. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Disneyland and taken the, uh, the Jungle Cruise ride. You just see their eyes, just there, just above the water. And then their little ears wiggle, and and they make a big to-do on the jungle ride of, oh, look out, it's a hippopotamus. This is not good for us. They try to steer away from them. We recently were at a zoo up in Ohio that had a hippopotamus exhibit. And, and they were massive! And yet they'd get in the water, and they, they just... <laughs> Swam like ballerinas. It was the strangest thing ever. I don't know that ballerinas swim well, but they were just majestic and poetic in the water. And that's what God is saying. That's how he made them. Under a lotus plant, he lies down in the covert of the reeds and in the marsh, hiding among the reeds. The lotus plants cover him with shade, and the willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he's not alarmed. Why? Because he's at home in a river and he can stand still. He can just plant himself. And even a raging flood that would wash the rest of us away, he'll just plant his feet and stand there. If a river rages, he's not alarmed. He's confident. Though the Jordan, the Jordan River, rushes to his mouth, he's still confident. He's going to stand there. So can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? Now, you know, an oxen used to get their nose pierced and they'd put a ring in it so that they could control the animal. So God is saying, can you control a hippopotamus that way? Can you put a ring in the nose of the hippopotamus and get him to do your bidding? When was the last time you saw anybody plowing a field being drawn by a hippopotamus? Just doesn't happen because hippopotamuses do not do the bidding of people who capture them. Mm -hmm. Can anyone capture him when he's out on the watch? Well, no. The answer is obviously no. You can't control a hippopotamus. Okay, so if you can't control a hippopotamus, and we all agree, with the exception of Steve, who'd like to sing about him, uh, since we can't control a hippopotamus, What are the chances we're going to control the God who created the hippopotamus? That's God's point. Hmm. Chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? I don't know how many of you are fishermen. How many of you have tackle boxes? How many of you have fishing poles and strings and nets and go out fishing? When was the last time you fished for a crocodile? And in the Nile in those days, they used to have gigantic, huge creatures. They're still just enormous. And they're made. God's going to say, I made them in such a way you can't pierce them. You can throw a javelin at them and it'll bounce off them. I've made them that way. I put a suit of armor on them. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Well, the answer is obviously no. Can you press down his tongue with a cord the same way that you might put a bit in the mouth of a horse in order to control a mighty horse? Can you control a crocodile by putting something in his mouth and pulling back a rope or a bit on him? No, you don't ride crocodiles. Can you put a rope in his nose? Can you pierce his jaw with a hook? The answer to all of those is no. Nobody controls the crocodile. Verse 3 Will he make many supplications to you? No, crocodile will eat you. That's what the crocodile will do. He will not ask you for anything. Or will he speak to you with soft words? No, that's not the nature of crocodiles. Will he make a covenant with you? In other words, can you make an agreement with him and then expect him to keep the agreement? Will you take him for a servant forever? When I read those verses, will he make a covenant with you? Will he keep his promises to you? I was reminded of a joke, which I will now share with you, about a a mouse that was standing on the shore of a river, and a snake comes up to him and says, trying to get to the other side of the river? Jump on my head. I'll swim you over to the other side, and you can jump off. And the mouse says, no, I'm not going to do that. You're a snake. I know what you're going to do. We're going to get to the middle of the river. You're going to shake me off. I'm going to start drowning, and you're going to eat me. Snake says, no way. No, not this time. Nuh-uh. Not going to happen. You can trust me. I'm making a promise to you. Jump on my head. I'll take you to the other side of the river. So against his better judgment, the mouse says, okay. And he jumps on the snake's head. Snake gets to the middle of the river, shakes him off, starts eating him. And the mouse says, I knew it. You promised. You promised. And the snake says, you knew I was a snake when you climbed on. <laughs> Same deal here. You don't make a covenant or an agreement with a crocodile because it's a crocodile. <laughs> His nature is such that even... If you attempt to make a deal with him, he doesn't care. All he wants to do is kill you and eat you. Will you take him for a servant forever? Now, the implication of all these questions, by the way, is you can't do that, but God can. God can make these animals, the behemoth and the Leviathan. He can make them serve him. They do his bidding. He supplies for their food. They exist because of him. They draw breath because of him. Will you play with him like you play with a bird? Who has ever tried to play with a crocodile the way you would play with a bird? If you play with a bird, no harm is going to come to you. There's nothing they can really do to you. And he said, you don't play with Leviathan that way. Or will you bind him for your maidens? In other words, make him a pet. And give him to your young children, to the maidens, to your female children, to the female servants around the house, the young girls. Look, I got you a pet. It's a crocodile. Will the traders bargain over him? That means could you ever capture him and then sell him as a beast of burden that traders would be willing to buy him off you? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Well, you can't. If you throw a harpoon at a crocodile, as I said, it will just bounce off because he has layers and layers of protective shell-like scales all over him. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him and remember the battle and you will not do it again. In other words, God is saying, try at once. Try putting your hand on a crocodile. You won't do it again. Probably because you won't have a hand. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? I think God is making a declarative statement there. You will be laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse the crocodile. Who then is he that can stand before me? So if you're out in the wild, if you're walking around and you see a crocodile You don't think immediately, let's wake him up. You think, let's leave him alone and let's sneak away. God says, if you're afraid of him so that you won't arouse him, how are you going to stand before me when I'm the one who made him? You're afraid of the power that I put in him, the danger that I put in him, the threat that I put in him, and I'm the one that put those things in him. So how in the world are you going to stand in front of me and be so bold as to think you're going to put me on trial? Who, verse 11, who has given anything to me that I should repay him? That, by the way, is a very theological statement because you can extend that all the way out into salvation and ask the question, why does God save people? Does he save them because they brought him something, their faith, their decision, their willingness to make him their Lord and Savior? God has just said, there's nothing you can possibly do that makes me any better, that completes me. I have no needs. There's no necessity that you are filling. Who has ever given anything to me that I then have to repay him? I owe him something. And yet so much of modern thinking of how God saves people starts with that very premise that you give something to God and then you obligate him. And it's necessary then that he repay you. But all the way back here in Job, as God is presenting his own sovereignty and his own ability to do whatever he wants to do, he makes it very clear. Whoever gave anything to me that I would repay him, because whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So what are you going to give him? How are you going to obligate him? How are you going to come up with enough money? How are you going to make enough sacrifices? Even if you were sacrificing animals from morning till night, those animals all belong to him. The cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's. So what are you ever bringing to God? What are you ever giving to God? That's God's argument. What are you ever bringing to him that could obligate him to repay you, considering that absolutely everything you have is already his? After all, he created everything. So that means that he's utterly independent of human beings and anything that human beings could bring him. We don't improve him. We don't obligate him. We don't guilt him. There's nothing we can do to get him to do what we want him to do. He only does what he wants to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. I will not keep silent concerning the limbs of this beast, this leviathan, or his mighty strength, or his Orderly frame, it says here, it means his well built frame. I designed him this way on purpose, making it very difficult for you to control him or to even stab him or to overcome him. Because verse 13, who will strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Interesting language there. Do you know what he's referring to, double mail there? when knights used to go into battle underneath the suit of armor they would wear a knitted grit which is actually by the way believe it or not where the phrase comes from getting down to the nitty gritty it gets down to the knitted grit that they used to wear and then they would have chains over that and those were called chains of mail and it was all to protect their body and so God is saying I designed into this animal that very concept. You got that concept from me because I put that onto his back. I put double mail, double layers of outer armor on him. Who can open the doors of his face? In other words, who can force the mouth, and why would you, force the mouth open of a crocodile? And his face is covered and protected Who's going to open the doors of his face? Because around his teeth, there is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another, one scale is so near to another, (laughs) so compressed to each other that no air can come between them. So if they're tightly sealed and no air can get between them, you can see why javelin's spears would just fly off them. Harpoon, it's not going to work. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and they cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Let's talk about each of those phrases. The idea that his sneezes flash forth light. Have you ever seen a crocodile come up out of the water and he will clear his nostrils? And when he clears his nostrils, droplets of water fly everywhere. Sort of like reflecting the light. But the really interesting phrase is, his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. As I was reading about that phrase... Do you know what the Egyptian hieroglyphic is for the dawning of the day? It's a crocodile eye. Because a crocodile eye is very much like a cat's eye. And so if you've ever seen a crocodile open its eyes, first it opens its eyelid and then its vertical pupil comes open. So God even says it's like the day breaking when he opens his eyes. His eyelids are like the morning. Now, starting at verse 19, you're going to see the stuff that led people to believe that God was describing a dragon. And since we've never found dragons anywhere on the planet, you can see why they would say, well, then it's a mythological beast that he's explaining. Except that he seems to be describing an actual physical animal since he said, go and look at it. This is what I made. But it says, out of his mouth goes burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth, out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, and as a boiling pot of burning rushes. If you wanted to tenderize the rushes, the reeds, you would boil them, and he's saying that boiling, that burning, is like the breath of this creature. Now, we don't know if this is hyperbole we don't know if this is descriptive the way that he a few minutes ago said that the limbs of a behemoth he doesn't say they're like iron and tubes of bronze he says his bones are tubes of bronze but we don't really know verses 19 to 20 as you go and read commentaries they all say we assume this is hyperbole we've never found a creature that matches that but everything else in the description seems to match crocodiles. But his breath kindles coals, says verse 21, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. This also, I will add, is why the stuff that I read at the beginning of the evening where I said that the behemoth and the leviathan... The hippopotamus and the crocodile, if that's in fact what he's describing, became symbols of chaos, became symbols of evil. And so this also may be describing what happens when chaos, when evil breaks out that there's fire, that there's flame, that there's destruction. So this language may be, rather than being literal language, maybe God describing. What happens when chaos breaks out? In his neck lodges strength and dismay, unhappiness leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are all joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone. Even as hard as a lower millstone. When people used to use millstones in order to grind out a grain, the lower stone, the one that didn't turn, the one that didn't move, was a huge disc-type stone, very large, very heavy. And he's saying the heart of this creature, the heart of this animal, is so dark, so hard, that it's as hard as that lower millstone. That's a really hard heart. In other words, you can't talk sense to that animal. If he decides to charge you and attack you, you can't logic your way out of it. You can't tap dance or tell him jokes. He's not going to be amused by you. He's going to attack you because his heart is about destruction. And when he raises himself up, which means when he wakes up and decides to go on a tear, when he raises himself up, the mighty fear Because of the crashing, they are bewildered. They're confused. They don't know what to do. The crocodile's coming at them. And the sword that reaches him can't avail. You can try to stab him, but it's not going to work. Nor will the spear or the dart or the javelin. He regards iron like straw. He regards bronze like rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. So if you put a stone in a sling and throw it at him, it's just going to bounce off him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. That's a really accurate description and one of the many reasons that people say this has to be crocodiles. I don't know how many of you have ever had the pleasure of seeing the tracks that crocodiles leave in the dirt when they move, but I remember going to the zoo one time and they had crocodiles out sunning themselves. And one of the fascinating things was once they would crawl along the dirt and the mud on the side of the water, they left trails because their stomachs have little sharp, like pot shards, little broken pieces of pottery is the way God describes them, that create like a sledge. A sledge is something you would use to plow the land, to make furrows through the land. And they do that just by walking. He makes the depths, the sea, to boil like a pot. When a crocodile gets in the water and starts flicking his tail, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like the, the water is boiling under him. And he makes the seed like a jar of ointment. Really strange phrase. The apothecary, in order to make ointments, used to put the various ingredients in a pot and then boil them. And so he's saying the seed looks like it's boiling the way that an apothecary would boil the ingredients in order to make an ointment. <coughs> Behind him, He makes a wake to shine. And one would think the deep to be gray-haired. In other words, you would think that the deep was so old behind him. He's ancient. You look at one today and you think, you think that's a dinosaur. I mean, look at the thing. Why is this still alive? Why didn't this evolve? Why do these creatures still exist? Nothing on earth is like him, one that is made without fear. He looks on everything that is high, but he is king over all the sons of pride. In other words, when it comes to prideful creatures, creatures that don't care, creatures with hard hearts, he's the king. He's about as hard-hearted as it gets. So the implication of that entire chapter is, That creature is like that because I made them like that. And if you can't control them, how are you going to control me? If you shrink away from them because of the strength and the power they have, how are you going to stand in front of me? I have all the power. I have all the reason for you to be fearful. And you won't even stand up to a hippopotamus or a crocodile. And yet you think you're going to tell me what to do? And that leads us to chapter 42. Job then answered the Lord and said, after all this evidence that God has poured out to him, he says, I know that thou can do all things. It's the same thing David came to. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It's the same thing Nebuchadnezzar came to. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. God does all his bidding among the armies of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? This is something that God seems intent on teaching people, to teach them that he is God, therefore he can do whatever he wants to do. And you haven't really learned God aright, you haven't learned God correctly, Until you've come to the realization that he's God, which means he can do whatever he wants. Because everything that you are, everything that you know, everything that you see, everything that you interact with is all his to begin with. He made it all. He made your ability to think in order to recognize anything, in order to do anything. And you are made this way the same way. Every creature is made this way, the same way the hippopotamus is made that way, and the same way the crocodile is made that way, the same way the ostrich is made that way, the same way the lion is made that way, the same way that the goats are made that way. God made all those different creatures the way they were supposed to be. Therefore, the inescapable conclusion is you are how you are because that's how God made you. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, that's just how he is? Especially when you get fed up with somebody and you say, Man, I can't, I, why don't they change? And somebody will say, It's just how he is. Well, God here is saying, That's just how you are because that's just how I made you. Whether it's the hard and fierce heart of a crocodile or whether it's the stupidity of the ostrich, everything in between. God says, I make it, I designed it, I did it my way on purpose because that's what I chose to do. And you have no say in it. The remarkable part of it, because we have the rest of the Bible to deal with and understand we have the further revelation of God, the remarkable thing is you are what you are, you are the way God made you, and then God says that in Christ he'll remake you. Mm. And make all things new. And make you into the image of Christ. But left to yourself, you are always going to be who you are, what you are, what you're like. Get this right. People don't change. I've known a lot of people through the years who have sworn up and down. I'll do better. I'll change. I'll change. People don't change. They are who they are. You knew I was a snake when you climbed on. That's the application of that joke, by the way. (laughs) So Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You do whatever you want and nobody can change that. Now Job says the same thing God said. God showed up and said, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? So Job shows God that he's learned that lesson and says who is this that hides counsel without knowledge therefore i have declared that which i did not understand things too wonderful for me which i did not know here now i will speak And instead of instructing God, remember earlier he was saying that he was going to tell God what he thought and God was going to have to answer him. Now he says, hear me now and I will speak, but I will ask you and you instruct me. That is the way, by the way, that we ought to approach everything in the Bible. Mm. We ought to come to the Bible and forget all our preconceived notions and all our traditions and all the things that we think God ought to be like. And we ought to understand as we read the Bible that that is God instructing us. One of the most difficult things for egocentric humans to do is to admit that they just don't know what they think they know, that they're just not as smart as they think they are. Because people think that simply because they have an opinion that that creates reality, especially when it comes to the things of God. And they'll say to you, well, my God isn't like that. No, no, you don't, you don't get a personal God. There's just simply God. God. And he's what he's like, and he will tell you what he's like. And his expectation and requirement of you is that you forget what your opinion is and instead be taught by him, be taught through his word, let him instruct you about what he's like. And if you do that, you're going to come away with the realization that the only God who exists is completely in control absolutely sovereign I had somebody again just this week ask me where in the Bible do you get this notion that God is completely sovereign I wrote back and said it's it's all through the Bible there it is it's in the Bible what do you want from me it's everywhere in the Bible in fact once you see it you can't unsee it once you know it's there it's on every page It's constant. God is demonstrating over and over again that he's in complete control. Heaven, hell, and earth, it's all under his dominion. Which is why we say things like the kingdom, the power, the glory, the dominion, everything. That's all yours. We admit to him that he has complete control. Where did we learn that? Well, he taught that to us. How did he teach that to us? Through his word so as you pay attention to his word well then you can ask him and he will instruct you which is what Job came to which is exactly where God wanted him verse 5 the repentance kicks in I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear that's how most people come to their knowledge of God they hear people opinionating people saying he had his three friends saying no God's like this This is what God would be like. God does this. That's what God does. Oh, I heard about thee from the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. It came about, says verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite... My wrath is kindled against you. One of the most frightening phrases in the Bible. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. It's just a living guy standing up on his hind legs. Yeah. And God shows up and says, I am so angry at you. And this is after, by the way, this is after God has demonstrated complete control of everything. This is after God has demonstrated himself in constant storms and whirlwinds. This is after God has said, you're afraid of the behemoth. You're afraid of crocodiles. You're afraid of the creatures I made. Why aren't you more afraid of me? My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That is one of the key lessons of the book of Job. It's one of the reasons for studying the book of Job, is that very concept right there, which is God expects that proper things will be said about him. Anybody ever heard anybody say something about God where you thought to yourself, Well, that's not right. Well, that's not correct. It happens regularly on Facebook. As I'm saying this, somebody right now is typing something on Facebook that is utterly incorrect. And here, God, if they knew better, they would keep their mouth shut. They'd put their hand over their mouth. They'd back away from the keyboard. And they would understand that when they say incorrect things about God, and usually those incorrect things are based on their own opinions on what they think God ought to be like instead of what God is actually like. God's anger is kindled. His wrath is kindled against people saying wrong stuff about him. Well, then I would think it would be incumbent to make sure that if we talk about him, we say the right stuff. And how can you guarantee you're saying the right stuff? Just say what the Bible says. Just keep saying what the Bible says. One of my pet peeves right now, by the way, is that there are people creating memes of things that they themselves have said and then give themselves a little credit at the bottom of it and then tack on a couple Bible verse references. They don't quote the verse itself. It's just, you know, Psalm 103.2 or something like that at the end of it. And I think, why didn't the meme... Include just Psalm 103 too if that's what you're trying to say just let it say it the Bible already says it so put that out there put the word of God out there we don't need your opinion with the word of God tacked on to try to validate your opinion what we need is the word of God that's the only place that we're going to understand God's revelation of himself and God gets angry he gets wrathful when you start saying things about him that are not correct and the only reason people keep doing it i'm ranting now i know but the only reason that people keep doing that is because there's no fear of god before their eyes mm-hmm. if they had a proper reverence a proper fear of god which is the beginning of wisdom if they had that when they sat down and started writing out their opinion about God or throwing up some silly meme or something like that, they'd stop and look at it and go, is this really representing God the way God wants to be represented? Because how God expects to be represented is more valid than your opinion of how God ought to be represented. True? True. True. Okay. So it came about that the Lord, after he had spoken these words to Job, He said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. Arguably the oldest book in the Bible. And God right here is demonstrating intercessory prayer. That's really interesting. There's a sacrifice. You have sinned. You've made me angry. In order to abate my anger so that I don't pour out my wrath on you, I'm going to allow a sacrifice, blood sacrifice for you, and an intercessor. Somebody's going to get between me and you in order that I don't pour out my wrath on you. Well, there's the essence of the gospel right there. Mm -hmm. That God was going to pour out his wrath, his anger on all of us eternally. And then he allowed that an intercessor could make an adequate sacrifice. And that intercessor could get between us and him. And that the wrath of God would not fall on us. And Paul writes, we're not appointed to wrath. But we're not appointed to wrath, not because we're good, not because we're right, not because we obligated God We're not appointed to wrath because we're protected by the intercessor. God's teaching that all the way back here. First, he tells them, I'm so angry at you. My wrath is so kindled against you. But then he allows you can take animals, seven bulls, seven rams. You can kill the animals and then take them to my servant Job. He will intercede for you. He's going to offer up the burnt offerings. And my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. So what is God saying? He's saying, I should judge you. I should pour out my wrath on you. I should. But I'm going to allow that an intercessor that I accept, I accept Job, and I'm going to allow the intercessor to stand between my wrath and you, and by doing that, My wrath is not going to be poured out on you, which you deserve. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right. God has said it twice now. That's adequate witness. God has twice said, there's no ambiguity here. You did not say. What was the big sin here? People are so... Frivolous with their tongues. What was the big sin here? It wasn't killing anybody or committing some heinous crime or stealing from anybody or committing adultery or no, it was what you said. You spoke about me and you didn't say the right stuff. And twice God says, I'm so angry at you for doing that, so much so that you need sacrifice. 14 animals have to die in your place. An intercessor has to get between my wrath and you. That's how angry I am at you. Verse 9 So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. So much so, such a complete acceptance. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. So Job ends up at the end of the story with twice as much as he had before. As we've been reading through the book of Job, and typically when we think about the book of Job, we think about God's sovereignty and his ability to do anything he wants, and that's how we sort of justify the idea that God put all this sickness on Job. We say, well, God can put sickness on Job because Job belongs to God and God can do whatever he wants and he chose to put the sickness on Job. And I think we concentrate on that aspect of it so much that we forget that Job was very rich to begin with because that's what God decided to do with Job. And then after he went through the sickness, he got twice as well off as he was to begin with because that's what God decided to do with Job. The God who can do whatever he wants doesn't just make people sick and poor, sometimes he makes them well-to-do. And that's still the same God doing whatever he wants to do. Look, there is no sin in being wealthy. There is no sin in God giving you plenty. Now, God knows your heart well enough to know if those riches are going to draw you away from him. And if he knows that the only way or the best way to keep you in line is to take all that stuff away from you, he'll certainly do that because he loves you enough to keep you from wrecking yourself. Mm -hmm. But if you have plenty, then thank God for the fact that he gave you plenty. Mm -hmm. Abraham was so rich, he had his own standing army. I mean, in the Bible, David was rich. We certainly know that Solomon was rich. There were plenty of examples of people who were well-to-do. It is not ungodly to be well-to-do. It's what you do with what God gives you that shows, that demonstrates the condition of your heart. So, all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the trouble that the Lord had brought on him. And each one of them gave him a piece of money, and each one gave him a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And he named the first daughter Jemima, and the second one Keziah, and the third Karenhapak. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived another 140 years. And he saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations. So he was alive to see his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons. If Job is counted as a generation, that's as far as he got. If he's counting generations of grandsons, he saw his great-great-grandsons, which, by the way, you could do in 140 years. So Job ended up dying. Verse 17, the end of the book, an old man and full of days. So the disease did not kill him. Remember at the beginning of the book of Job that God allowed Satan to have his flesh, but he said, you can touch him, you can touch his flesh, but you can't kill him <coughs> because life and death is in God's hands. So no matter how sick Job got, no matter how much Job wanted to die, God kept him alive. He did not die. He lived another 140 years, and he finally died, apparently, of old age, an old man and full of years, and apparently died happy because he was restored and had sons and daughters again. So to summarize, what have we learned? Obviously, the first lesson, as I said in the introduction to Job, the first lesson is why people suffer. People suffer because that's God's design. That makes them more dependent on him. It's within God's purview, in his sovereignty, in order to bring suffering into people's lives. If you're a human being and you're on the planet, you're going to go through trouble. That's part of the deal. But secondly, the second big lesson is, why do people worship God? I think that's the primary theme of the book. People worship God because, and follow me here because I don't want to get overly complex, People worship God because he's God. It's that simple. And God shows up and demonstrates all the stuff he does in order to point out, I'm God. There's also I'm, a, pardon me? He's God, you're not, don't speak for him. Well, if you speak for him, speak carefully. Well, yes. S- say what he says. In the Bible. Yes. Course, but do not it, mince his words. Yeah. That's what I meant. I agree with that. God is absolutely sovereign. That is everything we believe. That's why we are a sovereign grace church. It's written all the way through the Bible time and time again. And I think if you followed us through the entire book of Job and have not come away with the realization that God is demonstrating that he is absolutely sovereign, then you've missed one of the key points the key point is that God, who is God, can do and does do whatever he wants. And what you think of that doesn't change that he's going to do whatever he wants to do. So as James said, we got to be really, really careful when we're talking about God, because God is going to be sovereign no matter what you think of it. And no matter what you say about it or how you opinionate about it. God is going to do what God is going to do. It seems to me like smart men and women would get down on their face in front of Him and admit, you're God, you can do whatever you want. That, I think, is the key lesson of the book of Job. Questions? Comment. Well, then comment away. I have in probably the last week or ten days heard two sermons from relatively well-known preachers who talked about the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. And they used scripture and they used a personal example both in their own lives and people that they had known where trouble came. And it was accepted because these individuals recognized God is sovereign over their lives. Except... God's absolutely dependent on their free will to choose him in salvation. And it, it just boggles my mind that they can see his sovereignty <coughs> so clearly when it comes to how you live your life. But, but when it comes to eternal salvation, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a marvel. And yet that, that is the popular theology. That is what people think. They think God is completely sovereign, so much so that I can limit his sovereignty and only let him be sovereign this much, which makes no sense to me. I had somebody years ago, I'm trying to think who the preacher was, Adrian Rogers, who isn't here anymore. He was talking against Calvinism, and he called it extreme sovereignty because he believed like you just described he believed that God was sovereign in the places where Adrian wanted him to be sovereign but when it came to salvation if you believe that God decided who was saved and who wasn't that he called extreme sovereignty and I thought the very word sovereign Already means extreme. I mean, it already—it's all-encompassing. That's what sovereignty is. I mean, it means that he is absolute. So, what's extreme absoluteness? Once you're absolute, you don't get more than that. But people carry that conflict in their heads, where they're willing to say, "God is sovereign over these things." And then they use the word sovereignty, but they don't seem to know what it means. And then turn around and say, "But it's up to me if I get saved or not." And that makes no sense at all. Even word definitions are turned upside down by that. Anything else? All right. Are we in agreement that God is sovereign? He yes. sure is. It I mean, doesn't,
1: doesn't matter. It doesn't if we are. matter if we. Are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but, but Megan and I are in agreement. Yeah. That we both want to ride a crocodile. Yes. Someday. Well, go ahead. Yeah, go right ahead. Who's stopping you? The crocodile. The
1: (laughs) earth's recreation. Oh.
0: (laughs) Well, someday when children are able to put their hands down in the holes of asps and stuff and nothing will hurt nor harm in all our creation, then maybe you can ride a crocodile. And I do want to have. Something to look forward to. And you want to have a hippopotamus for Christmas. Well, I think we've gone from the sublime straight to the ridiculous. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.